The actual word forgiveness is not there. It's not used not even once. Neither is there any doctrinal principle that would lay the foundation for forgiveness. Paul does not appeal to the word, using the word forgiveness, he does not appeal to the law or to principle, but he appeals to love. Paul could do that because he assumed Philemon already understood the principles of forgiveness just like we do. He knew Philemon was right with God and he had the character to forgive. Last week we looked at the spiritual characteristics of one who forgives. We saw that a forgiving person is one who loves the Lord. He has a concern for all the saints, that he values fellowship and the unity of the church. He desires to have the experiential knowledge of all the blessings that Christ has given us, not just the head knowledge, but the practical experience knowledge. He is one who one who forgives is one who is concerned about the glory of God and of Christ, and he desires to be a blessing to others. Basically, when you sum up what we looked at last week, a person who has the ability to forgive like that is a spiritually mature person. He's not a fleshly person, but he's a spiritually mature Christian. And I think I quoted the statement that we are never more like God than when we are forgiving. Because it takes a spiritually mature person to be wrong, to be hurt, to be sinned against, and to be able to sincerely not hold that against someone, but to, to forgive them. And that's what Paul is leading up to. Is He is, in the first few paragraphs of this letter, he praises Philemon for these Christian virtues that expound upon his spiritual maturity. He builds him up. And he's leading up to this request that he's preparing to make. So we're going to pick up this morning in verse 8. And I'll read verses 8 through 18 again. Apostle Paul says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you, Father, for... The blessings of the Bible, Father, the written word that you allow us to have, Father, that we may know your deepest thoughts, Father, how we are to act in this world, Father, how we are to know you. You give us, Father, everything we need to know for life within this book. May we prepare our hearts now to hear your words, Father, to just not only hear them, Father, but to Put them into practice in our lives so that we may be closer and more conformed to the image of your Son. It's in his name 
that we pray. So where we start out in verse 8 this morning, the first word there is a good famous word, therefore, which is always one of those words that is a transitional word. It links what has been said prior to what we're getting ready to talk about. And Paul's saying, therefore, since you are all these things, since you have proven to love the Lord, you love the saints, you're concerned about fellowship, and all these things that we know about you, then therefore, I know what you're going to do is proper. I know you're going to do what's proper. And I thought about that. I thought, what compels one to do what is right? There's not just one thing that compels people to do what's right. Think about children. When you um, have children and they have, you know, you want them to do a certain thing or behave a certain way, what are some of the things that compel them to do what is right? Holy Spirit definitely encourages and gives us direction. Not all of them are good reasons. Fear. You think about children, that's definitely fear. But even in the church, sometimes fear compels you to do what is right. Peer pressure compels you. Right? We do that with our children sometimes. Rewards. You know, people do rewards. There's a lot of different things that compel us to do what's right. But Paul in this verse, verse 9, he says, Yet for love's sake. What he's saying is that I want you to do right, and and one of the motivating factors is going to be love. For love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. And I thought about, you know, the, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love should be our motivating factor, and the Bible teaches, you know, that that's what really should be motivating us to live a righteous and holy life is love. And Paul reminds Philemon, who's, who the request was coming for, for in verse 10, from this request, he says, I appeal to you. Paul, you know, he's, he's using himself. I'm appealing to you. One of the things, as I read that, I, I looked up, you know, tried to figure out what the commentaries thought about the eight. He said, I appeal to you, the aged. Paul, verse 9, he says, I rather appeal to you. I am such a person as Paul, the aged. And I couldn't find the exact ages of Paul and Philemon, but it, there was no indication that Paul was a much older man than Philemon. They were about the same age, probably. Why do you think Paul said, I, the aged, when he's talked to someone that's the same age as him? Anybody have any ideas? I think that's right, Malcolm. I think, you know, someone who's been, think about what Paul had been through. Have you ever seen someone who's really been through a lot in their life? They feel, their body feels older than it really is. And I think he was appealing to him based on what all I've been through in my life. I've been shipwrecked. I've been in prison. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been sick. I've been hungry. And I, Paul the aged, are appealing to you. And do you think Philemon felt any pressure to do what Paul wanted? He tells him, I could order you to do it, but I'm not. I'm just appealing to you. But that appeal... Yeah, but that appeal has a lot of pressure, I think, added to it. I, I thought that was fascinating that, you know, Paul says, I'm not going to, I could order you to, but I'm not going to I appeal to you. But all throughout this letter, he gives a pretty dramatic appeal. And I think he puts a little polite pressure on Philemon. Verse 10, he gets into his specific of, of his request. I guess you could say specifics because, again, I said he doesn't use the word forgiveness. But he, what he does do 
is that he gives us some specific actions that are involved in forgiveness. And I see three actions that are involved in forgiveness. The first action that I see is what John MacArthur calls reception. He said that the first action is reception. He receives in verses 10 through 14 again. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. He sends him back, and he's telling Philemon, I want you to receive him. So we see that first action is reception. And I think that's very important. And when you think about forgiveness, one of the things that involves it is involves opening up your life to the to the receiving person. You have to open your you know to someone who's offended you, who's hurt you, who's done something that needs forgiveness. And one of the first things you have to do as in forgiveness is you've got to open yourself back up to that person. You can't say I forgive you but I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I'm going to avoid you. I'm not going to talk to you. That's not forgiveness. You have to receive that person back into your life. Um, and I think that's the, the, where we see the very first aspect, a willingness and attitude to open oneself back up to that person. Is there anything in this story that leads us to believe that Onesimus is sincerely repentant? Do you think Onesimus is repentant? Why would you say he is repentant? He went back. I think that says something about the person who needs forgiveness is they have a willing to go back to the person, to right the wrong, to confront them again and to say, I was wrong. And he, I think that does show sincerity. It was the right thing to do. Paul may not have even wanted to send him back, but he did it because it was the right thing to do. And Onesimus, didn't, he didn't fight it. He did it. That's one of the marks of a repentant person that he's willing to face the person. Another mark of sincerity I see in, in Onesimus is he's a changed man. Verse 11 says, He was formerly useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. And I, you think about that word useless, when you look at it in the Greek, Paul uses a play on words. According to the commentators, it was really, really close to the same word that's used for Christless. Christless and useless were almost the same word. You know, before you had Christ, you were useless. Now that you have Christ, you are useful. And I thought about that in our own lives. Isn't that very true? The things that we strived for and did before we were a Christian were useless. The Bible says even the best things were as filthy rags. But now that we are Christians, we are now useful to Christ, to the kingdom. We're changed. And I think we see that in the fact that Onesimus was changed. Have you ever witnessed someone saying that they're sorry to you and then going right back over and doing the same thing over and over again? That shows a lack of sincerity, right? Here's a question that I thought about as I read this. Are we to forgive even if the person is not sincere? People shaking their heads, yes. Turn to Luke 17. I'll give you a scripture that to me, makes that very clear that we are. We don't know the hearts, do we? We can't judge the hearts. We, the Bible just tells us that we're to forgive. Luke 17, I want to read verses 3 and 4. It says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. That's pretty straightforward. If he sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Then verse 4 says, And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. I know that's used to exaggerate the point a little bit, but think about that. Somebody sins against you and he comes to you and says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Okay, I will. And then he comes back again and says the same thing. And then the same day, comes back again, third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time, seventh time, 17, verse 3 and 4. Starting to get a little old, isn't it? But the Bible doesn't say he's not sincere. It sounds to me like that person's not really sincere if they keep going back and repeating the same thing over and over and over again. But I think from this verse, we can see that you know it's not really a matter of whether the person is sincere or not. The Bible says we are to continue if they repent and say that they're repentant, that we are continue to forgive them. Is that a hard thing to do? Look what the next verse. What did the apostles say? Increase our faith. They thought it was impossible. So that's why they said increase our faith. That's a hard thing to do when somebody continues to sin against you over and over again. The apostles thought it was impossible. They said increase our faith. But that's what the Bible tells us to do. Here's another question. Are we to forgive a person that does not ask for forgiveness? I see some people shaking their heads yes. I don't, anybody say no? Everybody's on the yes side? Well, my answer is a little bit different. I'm going to say yes and no. But Matthew 18:15 was the verse I, that I had written down. The Bible says that that's the chapter that's basically on church discipline. It talks about if a brother sins, you go to them and you confront them. And if they don't um, repent, then you are to take a witness with you and go to them and seek their repentance. If they don't go and repent, then you bring them before the church. So that's a, an issue where someone is, is in sin and you are can, can continue to try to bring them to repentance. Um, and you're not supposed to wait for them Come ask for forgiveness. You're supposed to go to them and seek their repentance for the sin when they're caught in a sin. Um, but if they don't repent, are we to forgive them? I, I agree with you when you say yes. But also, as I thought about that and looked at it, I don't think you can do it in the full sense of the word because what is forgiveness? When God forgives us, what does He do? He restores the relationship. What about the punishment for our sins when he forgives us he sets that aside he holds our sin not against us anymore he no longer holds it against us true sense of the word forgiveness is removing the guilt it's not holding the guilt against us anymore there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus that's because we've been forgiven our sins but can you do that for a person that's never asked for it not in the full sense of the word. You can do your part. You can forgive in your heart and not hold bitterness against them. But can you have necessarily a completely restored relationship? Can you forgive them and not hold the guilt against them? They're still in that sense of the word. They're still guilty in the sense. And, and can you, are you continually still to go and take them, people with you and try to bring them to repentance? You're you can't not bring it up again if you if you have to go to them and take a witness and bring them before the church. So there's in one sense, you are to forgive in the sense of in your heart you're not to hold bitterness, you're not to let it you know destroy you. 
but you can't really fully have that restored relationship in the full sense of the word. One more question. These things that popped into my mind as I was going through this lesson. Does forgiving mean forgetting? What does the Bible say about forgetting? God remembers our sin no more as far as the east is from the west, but is that literal? That's more of a separation. He's not holding it against us because we know God is omniscient. He's, he knows everything. He can't forget something, and we can't. I mean, I thought about people that have sinned against me that I have forgiven. I still remember. I can't literally forget. What forget means is not holding it against them. It's that promise to not bring it up. In marital counseling, that's one of the things I'd have to deal with. If the husband is continuing to bring up the sin of the wife and throw it in her face, has he really forgiven her? No, because he's still holding it against them. So when you truly forgive someone, you may remember it, but you're not holding it against them. You're not constantly bringing it up. You're not throwing it in their face. Not constantly. You're not doing it at all. Forgetting, in a sense, means I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to hold that guilt to you anymore. So that's those are some of the things that I thought about when I thought about um, that element of reception. When you receive a person back, that's the type of attitude that you're going to have is as you receive that person and you've forgiven them back. The second action that I see in these verses concerning forgiveness is restoration, verse 15 and 16. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Not only, only was Philemon to receive him back as a slave, but he was also to restore him to service. Paul is suggesting that God's providential hand was at work here. I love the way he started this verse. He said, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. And one, one of the things that I don't like is when people constantly seem to know the, the hidden things of God and they want to be dogmatic. I like the way Paul used the word perhaps. Have you ever known someone who seemed to always be saying, this is God's will, that's God's will, but it's not things that are in the Bible, it's just circumstances, and they're always bringing it up. Paul uses the word perhaps. I just thought, I thought that was nice the way he wasn't dogmatic on that, that he said perhaps this was the reason that you were separated. And the reason I thought about that is because I've had some instances where that's been used, I think, in a negative way. We had a realtor one time before my wife was in real estate who helped us buy a house, and it was a really good deal. We made a low offer. We were expecting them to get back with us really quick, and we knew we had to jump on it. And the realtor, to our dismay, got busy, didn't turn in the offer, kind of got did other things, and somebody else ended up getting to the house for about the same price we were offering. And you know what he told me? Must be God's will, God's sovereign. And I thought, okay, God uses inept people. <laughs> the funny thing is it kind of is. When something has happened, in, in some senses that is God's will. But I don't think you dogmatically use that excuse when, because we don't know the secret things of God. The Bible says that Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things of God belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. So I don't like it when people dogmatically 
start talking about God's will when it's not something black and white in the Bible. I like the way Paul uses perhaps this was the reason. But that's kind of a side note. But I like his wording there. Onesimus being a part of from Philemon for a while, did result in a reconciliation that would now be eternal. Notice Paul doesn't call for Onesimus to be freed at this point. He just says, accept him back, not only as a slave, but as a brother. They now have a restored and they have a renewed relationship, not only as a slave master, but as brothers in Christ. They can now serve alongside of one another and minister together. And that's what happens. When true repentance is sought and forgiveness is granted, there can and should be a restored relationship that can many times be stronger and better than ever before. Has anybody ever experienced having a restored relationship that became stronger after the relationship was restored than it was before? I see some people shaking their head. That that happens a lot. When it is done through biblical, Christ-centered forgiveness, a lot of times the relationship can be stronger. There's another element of forgiveness that's mentioned in this text, and that is the element of restitution. We've looked at reception and restoration, and verse 17 and 18 says restitution. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me, but if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. This action, unlike the other two, is done by the offending party. If she or he has wronged someone and they have the ability and or means to make it right, they should. And this is an actual biblical principle as well. Turn back to Numbers 5, and I'll show you this in the Old Testament. It's actually in several different places. But Numbers 5 gives us an account of making restitution when you've sinned. Numbers 5, I'll read verse 6 and 7. Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him he has wronged. We also have an account in the New Testament of Zacchaeus when he encountered Christ and became, you know, he was a tax collector and, and when he became saved, he gave back even more. He made restitution. So that's a biblical principle that we see is that there should be restitution. Now, in this case, Onesimus probably didn't have the means to pay back Philemon. So Paul offers to pay his debt. As I thought about that, I think that's obviously um, a picture of the work of Christ, isn't it? We have, all of us, have a debt that we could not pay And Christ paid our debt for us. And that's what Paul is is offering here, is to pay his debt. There's many elements that we could discuss about forgiveness, but in our text here in Philemon, we have seen the principle of reception, restoration, and restitution. In the remaining portion of the letter, Paul gives us several non-subtle appeals to why Philemon should receive and restore on Eismas, and we see several motivations to forgive. Verse 19 is that motivation of that unpayable debt. Philemon owes his life to the Apostle Paul. In my Bible, the actual words are in parentheses. Right after he says that, I'm writing with my own hand. He says, I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. We assume that he's talking about his spiritual life, not his physical life. Some most of the, all commentators agree that probably 
Paul was probably the one that led him to the Lord. And he's saying, you owe to me a debt that you can't repay either. And he appeals to Philemon based on that. And I thought as I thought about that, I thought about all of us owe a debt to someone. When you think about your salvation and your spiritual life, do you, is, do you owe your debt? Do you owe a debt to anyone because of that? Anybody have an example? I owe a debt to a group of people, I guess, early in my, I guess I was 18, 19 years, 19, 20 years old and uh, got involved with a, left a non-Bible-believing church and went to a Bible-believing church and there was a group of people and called a little Sunday school class called the Maranatha Sunday school class. And I have such warm, even when I say the words, I have such warm feelings. And the leader of that class, Marty Pinkston, was just a, such a godly young man who took an interest in the class, took an interest in me and my wife, and really helped grow us up in the Lord and really get us right onto the right foot when it comes to growing spiritually. And I've written him a letter more than once, actually just thanking him and encouraging him that what he's doing and teaching that class. And he still teaches today, and not quite as young of people, but he teaches today. How about anybody else? Anybody have a debt they owe? The older brother. Good for you. Encourage him. Remind him of that. Anybody else? Nobody's indebted. Everybody came to salvation on their own. Yeah, I think if we all were honest, you know, God doesn't. He can use the radio. He can use verse by verse ministries. He's using Steve when he does that. He's using this church when he does that. Most everyone is not blinded on the road to Damascus by the Lord Himself. God uses people and other means, and we are indebted to someone. And Paul appeals to Philemon on that behalf as he nudgingly appeals to him to do the right thing. Verse 21, there's another motivation. He appeals to Philemon's desire to be obedient. He says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Some commentaries think that because Paul said, I know that you'll do even more, that he was talking about releasing him. But I think you're reading way too much into it if you read that. It doesn't say anything like that, but some commentators believe that. But he is appealing to his obedience. Obedience to Christ should always be a motivating factor, whether we feel like it or not. And I think that's something that I run into in the counseling ministry a lot, is that people live by feeling and we don't always have the right feelings, do we? We are to to go by obedience. We are to walk in obedience. We don't and shouldn't do things based on feeling, but based on obedience. And Paul's appealing to Philemon on that basis. Verse 22, he appeals to him and by the motivation of accountability. He says, At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. He doesn't specifically say it, but... Paul tells Philemon that he's expecting to be released soon and I want you to go ahead and prepare a place for me. I'm coming to visit. you think that has any impact on whether what Philemon's going to do, knowing that the great Apostle Paul is going to be coming to his house to stay for a while? He's not going to, he's going to get there. He's going to say, where's Onesimus? Did you execute him? No. He, he knows that Philemon's going to do the right thing, but he's just reminding him, I'm going to come visit you and I'm going to be there soon. So there's a little bit of accountability from that. As a sidebar, as I read this verse, do you think that Paul believed in the power of prayer? Look at verse 22 again. He says that to at the same time prepare lodging for I hope that what? Through your prayers 
I will be given to you. Paul knows that Philemon's praying for him, that the church in his house is praying for him. And because of that, he believes that he's going to be released real soon. I think, and I don't remember which message it was, but recently Pastor Steve actually talked about prayer and praying expectantly. And as I prepared this lesson originally, that's one of the things that I was struck with, that sometimes in my life, I don't pray. I have to honestly believe that I don't really pray. I think sometimes being a Calvinist and being aware of God's sovereignty hinders my prayer in the, in the sense that sometimes I just pray, your will be done. And I don't try to figure out God's will and pray His will to Him and pray expectantly. I don't know if anybody else struggles with that, but you know, there's times when I pray for someone to get a job, but I don't I don't really have any expectation that they're going to get a job real quick. I just pray that because I know there's a need there. But we should be praying expectantly. If we're praying within the Lord's will, what does James say? The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Do we pray like that? I read a little uh, story as I was preparing this about James Hudson Taylor. He was a pioneer missionary to China. And on one of his journeys, the sailing ship in which he was traveling passed dangerously close to a reef. The ship's anxious captain kept hoping for a favorable evening wind to carry them away from the certain disaster. When no wind came, the captain said, We've done everything that can be done. We can only await the result. And Taylor replied, No, there's one thing we have not done. What's that? The captain said. Four of us on board are Christians, he replied. He continued, Let each of us retire to our own cabin and agreed prayer ask the Lord to give us immediately a breeze. He can as easily send it now as at sunset. After a brief time of prayer, Taylor felt so sure that God would grant his request that he could pray no longer. He went up on deck, asked the first officer to let down the mainsail. An unbeliever, the first officer refused and said, What would be the good of that? We have been asking God for a wind, Taylor declared. It is coming immediately, and we are so near the reef that there is not a moment to lose. As soon as the words were out of his mouth, Taylor saw the uppermost sail of the ship begin to stir, moved by a fresh breeze. They lowered the mainsail, and within minutes, the ship was steered towards safety. Now, we've all probably read stories like that, but I long for that to be in my life, that I can pray that expectantly and see the results. And I was challenged by Steve's message, and as well as this passage, that Paul prayed with that fervent, effectual prayer, believing that God would answer it. And I think we all need to pray like that. Well, Paul ends his letter by sending greetings from the rest of the believers who evidently knew each other. He was, in effect, reminding and encouraging Philemon of their accountability to one another. He lists five men who were known to Philemon. And you see there in verse 23, he mentions Epaphras. And what we know of Epaphras is that he was probably the founder of the church at Colossae and the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Heropolis. He was probably the pastor of the church that met in Philemon's house, in fact. Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. He, we don't know for sure if he was in prison with Paul or maybe he just identified closely with Paul in his imprisonment. He mentions Mark. This is John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas and the author of the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember something prominent about John Mark and the Apostle Paul? They had a disagreement, right? And they had to go. Paul actually sent him back and didn't want him to come with him. But... We can tell by this and Mark that, that this account that Marx is now with him again, that there's been some forgiveness and restoration in their their unity of fellowship. 
There's also, he mentions Aristarchus. He was a Jewish believer, native of Thessalonica. He was with Paul during the riot at Ephesus, the shipwreck on the way to Rome. He'd been in prison with them. So he'd been through a lot with Paul. He mentions Demas. We don't know much about him, but what we do know is not good. In 2 Timothy 4.10, we are told that by Paul that he loved the world and that he had deserted him. But at this point in time, he was still a fellow worker with Paul. And he mentions Luke, the beloved physician and author of the third gospel. He was a frequent traveling companion with Paul, probably helped attend his frequent physical ailments. And as I thought about the mentioning of all these people, along with uh, the mentioning of Timothy up at, at the beginning, I thought, again, that adds to the accountability, doesn't it? He just reminds Philemon of all these brothers that are with him, that are in working with him and fellowship with him. And it reminds Philemon that, you know, when you do this, what's right, you're, you're basically, you know, you've got all these other believers that we are in contact with, that you are in agreement with and in unity with. And as I thought about that, I thought about the people that say, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't go to church. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And the Bible doesn't really support that viewpoint, does it? It supports the fact that we are to be in fellowship with one another, that we are not isolated, we don't live alone, that we have a group of believers that we are accountable to and that we, we share in each other's burdens and we encourage each other and lift each other up. And that, I think you know, that's important as we, as we think about that. There's one other thing that I thought I was convicted of this week as I was reviewing this lesson and that's the role that Paul played in encouraging Onesimus and Philemon, you know, to do what is right. You know, if Paul might not in his own personal life, he might have thought slavery was wrong. But does he say, Onesimus, I'm kind of glad you're free and, you know, go on and minister with me, stay here with me? He doesn't do that, does he? He could have kind of just ignored that and let that situation play out. And I wondered myself, do I sometimes do that? How does this, how does that apply to me? And I thought about, have you ever heard a Christian or have you been guilty of talking bad about another Christian or listening to gossip about another Christian? And if you do that, then you're not doing what Paul did. Paul encouraged them to do right. He encouraged Onesimus to do right and he encouraged Philemon to do right. Do you know of people in the church, maybe even here at Lakeside, who have hard feelings against each other? Do you put up with that? Or do you admonish them to deal with it? Paul wasn't just a preacher of the gospel. He was interacting with these individuals' lives in a way that made them more holy. He encouraged them to not put up with that. So if we have in our life someone that, you hear gossiping about another Christian saying something negative about them, then you immediately know there's a a relationship issue between those two individuals. Do you ignore it? Do you participate? Do you just ignore it, quietly say, I'm not going to listen to that? Or do you say, hey, I think maybe you need to pray about this situation and maybe you need to go to that person. That was something that I was convicted of as I meditated on this you know, there's so many things, you know, in this lessons on forgiveness that we can apply to our life. And there's one thing that I know, if you don't have any issues with forgiveness, if you don't have any issues with encouraging other people in their behavior, I know there's one issue that we can all identify with. And because I found myself identifying myself with the actual person of Onesimus, 
And I think we all can and should because we were all at once slaves to sin, were we not? Anybody here not at one point a slave to sin? We all were. We were all running from God. We all had wronged our heavenly master. And we had a debt that we couldn't pay, just like Onesimus. But in the same way, Paul was willing to charge that to his account. Christ was willing and did charge our sins to his account. And as I thought about the Christmas season, what better message? This is not a Christmas message, but it is the message of why Christ came to earth. It's the reason that he became a flesh and took on the form of a human, as Philippians chapter 2 says, and came to earth and humbled himself because he came to forgive us of our sins. And we are ever more like God when the, when we forgive. So I challenge you to really look into your lives and see if there's any issues in this forgiveness that need to be dealt with in your own life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, thank you that as we are in full swing of the Christmas season, may we all examine our lives and and really comprehend, Father, what you did for us by sending your Son into the world to forgive us of our trespasses. Lord, may we not be so prideful as to hold against others any type of unforgiveness, Father, for us. We would be fools to do that because you have forgiven us so much. May we model the life of Paul. May we encourage other believers to do what is right. Father, may we do it with a humble spirit and a gentle spirit, Father. But may we continue to grow in our own personal holiness, Father, and examples that Christ gave to us. May we model that, Father, in our own lives. Father, we lift up the church in Honduras. We pray that their meetings with some of the people and pastors of our church, Father, would be um, used in their life to make their church more holy, to make their leaders, Father, better equipped to serve their congregation. Father, it is a blessing to be counted as soldiers in Christ's army. And we are humbled, Father, that you chose us. It's in your Son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.